What's up, Knowledgers? I'm Danny. What's up, guys? I'm Chris. And you are listening to Serial Knowledge. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another week of Serial Knowledge. And boy, do we have a case for you today. What's up, guys? What is up? I'm so stoked. (laughs) I missed everybody. I hope y'all missed us. But yeah, we have a crazy case today. And before we get into it, first of all, I hope y'all got your guesses in because I told you where we're going to be. Technically, Alaska, but also kind of all over. So I got my guess in. Did I guess right? uh, No, you definitely guessed Ah, wrong. Damn, I thought it was Ted Bundy. (laughs) Shit. Uh, but I really quickly also <laughs> wanted to give a big shout out to my friends Dom and Kaylin. They actually recommended this case on our Facebook. And so when we had an opening in our schedule, we decided let's go ahead and take care of it. It is one that I had heard of before, but I haven't like actually researched it myself. So big shout out to them. This one goes out to you guys. We hope you guys enjoy it. What's up, guys? Shout out to you for recommending this case. And with that... We are going to be talking about Mr. Israel Keys today. Oh my God, dude. I think Danny was like, you guys know how Danny gives me shit for being excited about cases. I was way more excited than I think she's ever been. Oh I my was God. so excited. I got to give him shit this week, guys. It was amazing. <laughs> I was seriously so excited. So Israel Keys, this is what we're going to be doing today. So buckle up. This guy is absolutely fucking crazy. Um, He is referred to as one of the most meticulous serial killers that uh, America has ever seen. And oddly enough, a lot of people haven't really heard of him. Uh, I guess he's also known as the travel killer. Yeah, he did travel a lot. Like I said, he was kind of all over the U.S., even though he, um, at the time of all of his craziness, he lived in Alaska. But Israel Keys was born in Utah. He was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978. He was the second oldest of 10 kids to his parents, Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys. Holy shit, guys. That's a lot of kids. I I grew up in a family. I was going to say, I grew up in a family and I have nine siblings. So there are 10 of us. And let me tell you, having nine siblings is absolutely crazy. I mean, my parents did foster care for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean... They only adopted um, one, but we did foster care for... But at one time, I think we had about as many kids in the house as Danny had in his family. For a lot of my life, there was like no less than 12 or 13 people living in the house. So that was insane. (laughs) But Israel Keys' parents, they were kind of an odd couple. They didn't really believe in public schools, modern medicine, or any type of government interference in their lives. And the Keys were also raised Mormon. Oh, God. I know. We're not going to get into that. We'll nope. just move on. <laughs> no hate to any Mormon listeners. No. <laughs> uh, they also homeschooled their kids. And uh, when Keyes was a toddler, his family left Utah and moved to Colville, Washington. Uh, shortly after moving to Washington, the Keyes family started attending the Ark, which was a Christian identity church that was known for having racist, white supremacist, and anti-Semitic views. That's cool, bro. Sounds like a wonderful place to attend on Sunday morning. Let's go. I want to (laughs) go. Despite being raised Mormon and going to these types of gatherings, I will say, um, Israel actually rejected religion entirely, and he later identified as an atheist. You know, I've actually seen a lot of kids who grew up up in the church. um, Go on to kind of like deny religion. Not deny, I want to say, but they... They're not as actively involved in the church, if that makes any sense. For sure. I, I, me personally, I, you know, I grew up in the church. Danny grew up in the church. 
I, me and myself as a mom now, I don't necessarily go to church. My, my son has grown up in church. He loves church, which is totally awesome. Um, and he gets on me every Sunday, which should be a sign from God that I should be going back. But <laughs> no, point back to that is, yeah, most kids who grow up in the church tend to later either kind of fall out of the church or just not believe in religion much after that. Right, exactly, yeah. But it was definitely not that way for Israel. He like completely, he just completely rejected religion entirely. So, well, all right then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during the time in Washington, the Keys family became friends with their neighbors, the Kehoe family. Israel was childhood friends with Chevy and Shane Kehoe. They were both known to be racist, and later in life, they were actually both convicted of murder and attempted murder. So from a very young age, he kept <laughs> very... Uh, you took the words right out of my I was going to say, from a young age, he had some poor influences in his life, to say the um, least. Um, Mr. Keys, we need to have a talk about your choice in friends. Yeah, seriously. So in the late 1990s, the family moved again to Maupin, Oregon, and I did look it up, and that is the correct way to pronounce it, according to Google. So if you're nice. going to get mad at anyone, get mad at the internet. Okay. <laughs> uh, from there, they moved across the country, settling close to an Amish community in Maine. So they go from Utah, um, you know, which is mainly Mormon, to being in a a white supremacist church to moving to the Amish country. Exactly. Yep. That would confuse the hell out of me as a kid too. Yep, for sure. Um, and not only did they live in an Amish community, but they lived in almost complete isolation. Um, they lived out in the woods and the Keys kids grew up without heat or electricity. You know, that almost reminds me, I don't know how many of you guys, I mean, Danny says he doesn't really watch many horror movies, but this almost reminds me of like in horror movies or even in like, the criminal shows, you know, where they go out and you see this, like, run-down cabin in the middle right. of nowhere. Yeah. And there's, like, 20 people living in there. Yeah, just, that's probably kind of what it was like, honestly. Just, I just... That's the image I have in my head, guys, yeah. is one of those. No heat, no electricity, just kind of like a cabin in the woods, which is actually a horror movie. It is. <laughs> uh, but as a child, Israel broke into his neighbor's houses and stole their guns. Uh, Israel loved hunting. And he would pursue, quote, anything with a heartbeat and torture animals, which is behavior that has been linked to psychopathy. Yes. Many, many psychiatrists have sat there and said that that is a demon quality. Yeah, an early sign of some type of psychopathy for sure. So after Israel was a teenager, he told his family that he no longer shared their faith and his father cut ties but Israel did remain close to his mother. Why is it always the dad? Why? Why is it uh, always... Honestly... Have you ever noticed that it's, my, it's mostly always the dad that's like, get out? Yeah, I don't know. I think his father already had some issues. Mm-hmm. And so having him like kind of denounce the faith that his father grew up with and raised his kids to have was just kind of like the, the final nail in the coffin I mean, for dude, it. you raised your kids in the, wood in the Am- woods in the Amish country. Yeah, um, for sure. What did you think was going to happen? Exactly. So (laughs) at age 20, uh, Keyes joined the United States Army and served at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and he even spent some time in Egypt uh, until he was honorably discharged in 2001, just three years after he joined. All right. It was said that Keyes was a great soldier, but in later interviews, Keyes said that he was anxious for his military service to end so that he could start murdering people. He actually admitted this in an interview. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, I know. It's rough. I, so, don't, I don't have any words for that. <laughs> so in the year 2000, Keys became involved with a woman named Kimberly Anderson. Uh, she lived on the Maka Reservation in Washington, and um, they actually ended up having a baby together. I uh, couldn't find a ton of information about Key's daughter, other than the fact that Israel lived with his girlfriend, Kimberly, and their daughter on the Maka Reservation for some time after he was discharged from the military in 2001. I mean, knowing what I know, I mean, little bits, I don't know everything. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want to be associated with that guy either. Right. And actually, we'll see later. We don't touch on it a ton, but Keyes actually in his interviews mentioned that he didn't want his daughter to be affected by what he did. I mean, okay, that's... Oddly sl- touching. like uh, <laughs> For as crazy as you have told me he was. Yeah. Um, that is oddly like parental kind of yeah paternal paternal. yeah exactly it's Um, very odd but like he he's he said that i can't remember exactly but he said that he distanced himself from his daughter and i think his mother as well because he didn't want them to be associated with him and the things that he did but here's the thing is is that you're gonna be associated i mean they're gonna be associated with you no matter what yeah of course but he kept his daughter out of the limelight of all of it i mean i i totally get that as best he could as best as he could i totally get that but I mean, your your daughter, yeah, your mom, your mom's gonna be. They're gonna know who your mom is. Like, they're right. Mo- most, I'll bring an example to this really quick. Um, most of you know about the Columbine shootings that happened back in the, you know, late '90s. Well, after some time, Eric Kebold's parents ended up, you know, moving out of the house that they were originally living in. They're still here in Colorado somewhere. Right. Um, but they had to get away because people were literally harassing them for what their son did. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously they didn't do anything wrong. Right. But they were tied to it. They were associated with it. I mean, it. he tried to keep he tried to keep his parents out of it too. Yeah. Um, but the victims' families, unfortunately, and I'll touch this more when I get into Columbine. Yeah, because we are going to cover that eventually. Um, but the vi- and I'll say a little bit. Uh, the victims' families ended up blaming his parents for his actions of what happened, right? And how he was raised. I can I I can understand wanting to have a face to kind of give that blame to, right? And so I can understand it's like he's a child, his brain wasn't fully developed, so somewhere along the line, how he was raised must have caused this. Part of me can understand wanting to have that viewpoint, but nothing that tragic has ever happened to me, so I can't pretend to understand what they went through, or I can't like try to say that I would have no. one position, I like one way or the other. But but sometimes, guys, there's just people out there that there's nothing in this world that has happened to them. Their family life was good. Their their life in general was a okay, you know. Yeah, definitely. And they still decide that they want to go out and commit a murder Chris Watts yeah exactly so (laughs) anyways back to the case yeah so we'll get back to Israel Keys so in 2007 Keys actually moved to Alaska with his daughter and a girlfriend but it's not the same girlfriend as the one who is the mother of his child so it's not the baby mama it's the new girlfriend exactly and I couldn't find her name uh, but he moved Gee, to Alaska. Yeah, I don't know. He moved to Alaska with her and with his daughter. Um, no, you're fine. And they moved to Anchorage's Turnagain neighborhood, which was near many of the city's most prominent citizens, uh, including top attorneys and law enforcement officials. So 
Israel Keys is living amongst like attorneys, law enforcement officials, just in the same neighborhood as them, which I find to be pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah. And so shortly after he moved to Alaska, he opened up a construction and handyman business that was aptly named Keys Construction. Nice. And uh, State Senator Hollis French, who lived right around the corner from Keys, said, quote, he was well known in Anchorage as a really good handyman. Meanwhile, Keyes actually said about himself in interviews that he was, quote, two different people and that, quote, there's no one who knows me or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. I mean, damn, if you're going to play the two different people statement. Right. Living a double life kind of thing. But like, he's basically just saying that, like, this guy, this uh, the state senator who's yeah. like, yeah, he was a good guy. He was he was a well-known, uh, very good handyman. And he was like, he knew nothing about me. Nobody knows anything about me. I mean, that's true. I mean, people can only perceive you from what they do know about you. Right. Exactly. And if you're not putting forward your like, the honest, self. yeah, I was gonna say the honest truth about yourself, then obviously, uh, <laughs> obviously nobody's going to know who you really are. Obviously. So. Keyes admitted in an interview that his first planned attack took place in Oregon in either 1997 or 1998. Um, he abducted a teenage girl and then raped her. His intent was to murder her, but she convinced him to let her leave. Quote, I wasn't viol- violent enough, Keyes said to investigators. Quote, I made up my mind. I was never going to let that happen again. I know. <laughs> So you're not violent enough because abducting a girl and raping her is not violent enough. Um, he was saying that he wasn't violent oh, I, enough no, I of know. a person to kill her. Yet. I get that. <laughs> like, um, But I didn't know that you had to, there was a status quo for violence, you know, when it comes to murdering someone. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I need to go to some prisoners now and be like, yo. You're like, not uh, violent enough. On, on a scale of one to ten. One being, I wasn't violent. Right. Ten being like, bitch, please, I surpassed Charles Manson. Where are you on the violent scale for murdering people? Yeah, I don't get it. I just... <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm saying that abducting a girl and raping her, I believe is violent. Murdering someone, yes, is violent as well. But how how do you... What's the word? How do you get that thought in your head does that make sense like how do you know how to be how do you know when to be violent enough to murder someone yeah i i think that there's very clear signs of early psychopathy from when he was very young and it continued to go untreated and unnoticed and so it grew over time to become what it was at the end of everything i mean i kind of blame his parents a little bit they didn't necessarily raise him in the best conditions (laughs) this is kind of one of those cases that seems like it could be both nature and nurture maybe Um, maybe a little bit of both these kids would we would term like as feral children yeah the only reason i know that term is because when my mom did foster care we got a group of siblings right uh but they were coined feral kids because they lived in a cabin in the woods, right away from society. Yeah, with no their... heat and no electricity. Oh, I like... don't know that much. But... <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying in Israel Keys' case, like right. he checks all of those boxes. So I would 
coin Israel keys as a feral child. Yeah, which I feel like feral is a pretty accurate word to describe how he is. Okay. So. <laughs> um, Samantha Koenig was an acreage barista, and she was abducted by Israel Keys on February 1st, 2012. Prior to this abduction, Israel had actually selected the coffee shop that she works at. It was the Common Grounds coffee stand that was on Tudor Road. Keys had actually considered other coffee stands, but decided to go with the Common Grounds coffee stand because of its location and because it was open later than most of the other coffee stands. That's that's just odd. It's like you're just you pick a you know you have like pictures of like coffee stands and you throw a dart you're like okay that one yeah well <laughs> he, I think he chose this one specifically obviously because they were open later so right. he, he could get them before like right before they close and there's not going to be a lot of people around but that although from what I remember from the little bit that I watched on Israel I didn't finish it because I wanted to kind of be give a true reaction on the yeah. podcast <laughs> um but they said that uh Investigators were actually surprised because this coffee shop was actually in a, a well-populated area. Right. So for Israel to be able to get away with this, yeah, baffled them. Yeah. Right. And we'll and we'll get into a little bit more, but okay. I think even though it was a well-populated area, be- the fact that it was open later helped him. Okay. And because of, I think it was it was right near one of the main roads that went through town, so he was kind of easily able to like kind of get away from that geographical area that pretty makes, quickly. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So Israel had actually never even met or seen Samantha before the abduction. Um, on the day that he did take her, he approached the coffee stand just before they closed. He was wearing a ski mask and he ordered a coffee. Samantha made the coffee and handed it to Keys. Keys then pulled out a gun and demanded money. Samantha listened without any hesitation and then Keys forced himself inside the coffee stand. He then tied Samantha's hands with zip ties and asked where her car was. She told him that she did not have a car, and Israel then forcibly walked her out of the coffee stand towards Tudor Road, which is the road that the coffee stand was on. Um, so basically she kind of lied to Israel because I think her dad said that she did have a car. Her and her boyfriend share a vehicle. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. yep. So we're going to get into that. Okay, no. <laughs> um... That makes sense. I remember that now, but yeah, it was okay. Because yeah, her boyfriend was supposed to pick her up or something. Yeah. So while they were walking, uh, Samantha actually broke away from Keys and tried to run away. Keys chased her and tackled her to the ground. He put one arm around her and then pointed the gun at her body with his other hand. And he said that she needed to cooperate and that the gun was very quiet. Keys told her that she shouldn't do anything to make him kill her. They walked across Tudor Road into the parking lot between IHOP and Dairy Queen, where Keyes' truck was parked. Keyes had previously prepared the truck for the abduction by taking the mounted toolboxes off of the bed of the truck, as well as removing his license plates. He then bound Samantha in the truck and drove away. So this was this was premeditated. Very, very planned. Everything. That's why he's known as one of the most meticulous serial killers of all time, because everything was very planned. All right. When the police got to the scene of the coffee stand, they showed a complete lack of urgency in their investigation. They didn't even rope off the crime scene. That's that's what irritates me about the police, you guys. Yeah. Um, being into, you know, true crime myself. And this was back in 2001, guys, so for... No, this was 
this was 2007. Oh, two, sorry. 2007 guys. is when he moved okay. to Alaska. So 2007. This seems to happen a lot with there's the a, police. There's a lot of stories involving serial killers and involving crimes in the cases that we're going to cover and we have covered where police really didn't do a good job. Like There I mean, are cases where they did, but there's right. a lot of cases where police just kind of missed the mark. I mean, the only two cases I think we've covered so far that the police have actually really gotten involved with Shanann and uh, Kelsey Barrett. Yeah, for sure. Other than that, I'm kind of like, uh, I mean, maybe Eileen Warnos, but you know, that that took a little bit. Yeah, it seems like there's always at least a little bit of some kind of lapse in judgment from the police, but it definitely seemed like the police didn't really care a ton about Samantha's but, being missing. So with the crime scene and the lack of the police. Right, and the uh, fact that they didn't even rope anything off. Right, they didn't rope it off, so guys... The morning crew was able to come in and do what they needed to do for their morning jobs. Right, and like start to open the shop up and everything because it wasn't roped off. Right, and the public was allowed to come in, so there was hundreds of fingerprints all over that. Well, there wasn't... I I don't know that I'd say hundreds because this was like a little stand, kind of like we have this coffee shop here in Colorado called Dutch Bros. Bros. Yeah, buddy. So there's there's no inside for the customers on this shop. But even still, just having a couple workers in there, even just like spilling coffee and just like doing their morning routine, it's going to disrupt the crime scene. Right. But I mean, I just, I mean, if it's anything like Dutch Bros, like that drive through window, they hand it, you know, and they're also leaning at it and talking to people, which right. I did see on the surveillance video from Samantha the night that she was kidnapped, that she was leaning out and talking to him. Right. And the keys jumped through the window to get right. to her right. so any evidence that could have been left in that area possibly could have been compromised by the fact that they didn't rope it off okay so not hundreds but maybe tens 20s i don't know depending how on it. how long they had left it before actually trying to do any type of police work again that's just my scrutiny of the police department not that all police departments are like that but yeah no i get you for sure So in a later statement from the FBI, they did say that Israel had taken Samantha around 8 p.m. and that he had walked her all over Anchorage for four or five hours. And not only that, but Israel was seen with Samantha 13 times together. I, um, I wonder if she maybe tried, like, you know, somehow some kind of like body language or like just... Some kind of signal to let people know that she... Right, that she was in danger. Yeah, I don't know. There wasn't really anything in any reports that right. was saying that she was trying to get them noticed. But I do know that Keyes was so, like, not necessarily confident, but he just didn't really care about being seen with Samantha in public because he is so used to how the police department worked in Anchorage that he knew that there wouldn't be any urgency. And unfortunately for Samantha, he was right. He was right, which sucks. It's it's honestly terrible. The fact that the police force in the town that you live in can be so bad that you know you can get away with a crime, there's something wrong there. Oh yeah, for sure. Keyes then drove around town with Samantha still bound in his truck. And he told her that this was a kidnapping for ransom. So Samantha told Keyes that her family didn't have much money and that he would likely <clears throat> and that he wouldn't likely get very much in ransom. And so Keyes explained that they will raise money for ransom by seeking the public's help, and Keyes convinced Samantha that if she cooperated, she would be returned to her family unharmed. And Samantha believed him when he said that. 
and tried to talk to him in an effort to build some rapport and possibly even convince him to release her. So he lied to her. Oh, he absolutely lied to her. He knew that he wanted more than just ransom out of out of the act of taking Samantha. He knew that he wanted more than that out of it. What a fucking asshole. Oh, don't. Yeah, just... just I know, I'm but... I'm just saying, just wait till we get into I all the assholery that is Israel Keys. I don't call these guys assholes enough. I think you do more than I do. Probably. They but definitely are. He is such a fucking dickwad. Yeah, he definitely is. Like, the fact that he is so cocky about knowing the fact that the police will not be searching for her... It's a really sad fact, too. Like, not just the fact that he's so cocky about it, but it's a really sad fact that he has the ability to be confident that the police won't do anything. And then the fact that he sits there and he goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to release you once, you know, your once, fam- I, yeah. once your family ra- raises the money to pay the ransom. Yeah, for sure. At some point during the drive, Israel realized that Samantha did not have her cell phone, which was necessary for what he had planned. He wanted to send a ransom demand from her phone to make it like a for sure thing that people know that at the very least he has access to her phone. So he probably actually does have her. Uh, So he actually drove back to the Common Grounds coffee stand, went back inside, left Samantha bound in his truck, grabbed Samantha's phone, got back into the truck and drove away. Honey, buddy, I wish you had used that time. I, I, I really wish she had used... That opportunity. I mean, I don't know how she was bound. I don't know what she was like in that truck at that moment. I know she was probably scared for her life. It doesn't say what she was bound with, but it does mention that when he first got into the coffee stand, he bound her with zip ties. But I'm not sure what he used once he actually got her to his truck. I mean, I'm hoping... I really wish, and this is just me, guys, but I, I would so have hoped that she would have used... That 60, I mean, I don't know how far away he parked from the common grounds. I don't know. But even 60 seconds, guys, I mean, she could, and I'm not blaming her at all. Right, yeah, we're definitely not blaming the victim, but we just wish because we wish that what happened to her didn't happen. Right, I mean, she was, you know, she was young. She still had her whole life ahead of her. Right. So I really wish that she had maybe... Tried to escape. Tried to. I mean, I know she did once, and Keys caught up to her. Yeah, and I think, I think because of that, the fact that she did try to escape, and that he got back, and like got her back, and the fact that he convinced her that he was going to let her go if he got his ransom, that she didn't want to risk losing her life if she believed that she was actually going to be let go if he got his ransom. Okay, I can see how that's, that would... I that's mean, I, I, I can... I totally agree with Danny. I think that that would be maybe a deciding factor on whether you want to, you know, try and escape again. But my my heart just goes out to her because, I mean, I can sit here all I want and be like, oh, yeah, I would... I would so tr- totally try to escape. I... No. Yeah, but you'd never know what you would do unless you were actually put in that position. Right, I mean... None of us do, honestly, unless we've been in that position before. <laughs> Knowing myself, I would probably be curled up in the fetal position crying. <laughs> Maybe, but yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's it's a very sad fact, you guys. Definitely. So, Keys uh, continued to drive. He got to another part of town where he sent two texts from Samantha's phone. The first message was to Samantha's boyfriend, and the second was to the owner of the Common Grounds coffee stand. 
the text made it appear that Samantha just had a bad day and was leaving town for the weekend. Keys then took the battery out of Samantha's phone and asked Samantha for her debit card. Samantha told Keys that she shared a bank account with her boyfriend and that his <clears throat> and that his ATM card was in the truck that they shared. Samantha told Keys where her house was and gave him the PIN number to the ATM card. Keys then put Samantha in the shed in front of his house, bound her, and turned the radio up in the shed so that no one would hear her if she screamed. This is something that multiple serial killers have done where they like they lock the victim up and then they turn the radio up or turn like the TV up really loud so that no one can hear them screaming. And I feel like if I was ever put in a position similar to that, that would be so damaging to your psyche because like you know that even if you do scream no one's going to hear you i feel like that's just so fucked up and at that point guys i think knowing what i know about true crime and most serial killers normally at that point guys they're turning the tv up so either they can leave and they can't hear you scream or some bad shit's about to go down yeah exactly so so I, I agree with Danny that I think that really fucks up your your mental state. Yeah, it definitely can. It's just, I just, I, picturing it, like imagining something like that happening just kind of fucks me up. It's just terrible. Uh, so he left her bound there and he told her that he had a police scanner with him so that he would know if she attempted to alert the neighbors. Uh, Keys then drove to Samantha's house and got her ATM card from her truck. And while he was at Samantha's house, he was actually confronted by Samantha's boyfriend. Samantha's boyfriend yelled at him and then went back in the house to get help. Keys ran back to his truck and left the area before he was ever found. Why didn't he do something, Danny? He was trying to do something. He was trying to go get help. I mean, but I mean, this unknown guy comes and gets your girlfriend's ATM card or your ATM card from her truck or the truck. Right. And... At that point, he's got to wonder if he knows where she is. Right, um, but at this point, Samantha's boyfriend doesn't think she's missing because she hasn't been gone long enough. And Keys sent texts to her boyfriend to make it seem like she just had a bad day and was going to go away for the weekend. So was, he didn't really know that she was actually missing or in danger. So I wonder if he thought maybe he, that he was a friend or an I acquaintance. I mean, think about it. You, you get a text from your significant other, correct? Right. And it says, I'm going out of town. I had a really shitty day. You know, I'll be back in a couple days. And then while you're, you know, at home or at your girlfriend, your significant other's house, you see this person come up, get in the truck, grab the ATM card. Either red flags are going to go off or you're going to be like, Yo, do you know Samantha or do you know this person? Right. I think it's definitely going to bring up some red flags, but he didn't know what degree to be worried, you know, because he didn't know that Samantha was in danger at this time. I mean, okay. I just, I have so many. <laughs> in a couple weeks, I'm going to just order some red flags and every time I hear a red flag, I'm just going to throw one up. I mean, if we start doing that, then we're going to have to start recording video on these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, if we get Instagram, guys, you know, you can just watch me throw up red flags. That'll work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Keys then drove to an ATM machine to test the PIN number that Samantha gave him and then returned to the shed. Keys then sexually assaulted Samantha, then proceeded to choke her to death. Choke her to death. Choke her to death. Choke her to death. 
Keyes left her in the shed and then went back inside his house where he packed for a pre-planned cruise that he was taking to New Orleans. He left early in the morning on February 2nd for the cruise. Keyes then returned to Anchorage on February 17th, 15 days later. He took a... Yeah, he took a two-week cruise to New Orleans from Alaska. After murdering her. Yeah. He then began preparing a ransom note that demanded money be placed in the account connected to the ATM card that he had stolen from Samantha's house. He went into the shed and took Samantha's body and attempted to make it appear as if she was still alive. He then took a Polaroid picture of her tied up. The photo also showed Key's arm holding the Anchorage Daily News from February 13, 2012. He made copies of the photo and, using a typewriter, typed a ransom demand for $30,000 on the back of the photo. After preparing the note and the photo, he placed it in Connor's Bog Park, which was a dog park in Alaska. He placed the ransom underneath a memorial flyer of a dog named Albert. Then, using Samantha's phone, he texted her boyfriend saying that the ransom note was, quote, under Albert in Connor's Bog Park. The note was received by the Alaska Police Department. In the days that followed, Keyes dismembered Samantha's body and drove out to Matanuska Lake where he cut a hole in the ice and dumped the pieces of her body in the frozen lake. All right. Okay. All right. Okay, 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 all right. Um, let's back up here. Okay. Let's back up. Where? To the begin. No kidding. <laughs> um, so... You heard my rant about the cruise. He, you know, guys, I have so many issues with Israel Keys right now. We're not even close to being. We're not even close to done. I mean, this is premeditation at its finest. Oh, absolutely. He had all of this I, completely planned. I mean, I get again. Danny said that that he was the most meticulous serial killer, but I don't think I realized how meticulous until we started getting into this, Danny. Like, yeah, I told you. This guy, <laughs> he is absolutely crazy. Um, So, let me see if I get this straight. So, he kills her after he, you know, makes... He goes and makes sure that the pin works. Goes on a cruise for 15, 15 days. 15 days, yeah, 15. Okay, comes back, takes a picture, and it makes it look like she's still alive. Holds a... Newspaper up from, what, four days prior? Yeah, just basically show the date of when she was still alive. And then goes to a park, puts it in a, you know, a Ziploc baggie and says, hey, give me 30000 and I'll return her. And then he goes and he dismembers her and dumps her in a frozen fucking lake. That is correct. Holy shit, I'm speechless. Like, literally for once, guys, I know... I normally have a lot of shit to say about these guys, but I think Danny might actually leave me speechless on this case. <laughs> well, you know, I try. You do, and you've done such a wonderful job so far. Well, thank you. You're Let's so continue. <laughs> During all of this, Samantha's father, James Koenig, deposited reward money into the account that was connected to Samantha's ATM card. James was able to get the money because of the generosity of his surrounding community donating funds to him. So, pretty much, Israel was right on track with what he said. Again, he was very meticulous. He how, knew. how do you? How does he know these things, though? I, I think he just took time to really 
know how to get exactly what he wanted out of everything that he did. I mean, that's some serious voodoo shit, guys. Like, he told Samantha he was going to get the ransom money by people helping raise raise the money. money. And what happened? Her dad got the money from people helping. This shit is so fucked up. I I may need to go decompress after this. I know. The plan was to attempt to catch the perpetrator by tracking any withdrawals, because obviously at this time they didn't know that it was his real keys. Um, And ATM withdrawals were made in Anchorage and then in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Authorities were able to determine that whoever was making these withdrawals was driving a white Ford Focus. The FBI and the Texas Rangers tracked the ATM withdrawals as they occurred, And finally, Corporal Brian Henry of the Texas Highway Patrol pulled over a white Ford Focus matching the description. Driving this white Ford Focus? You guessed it, Mr. Israel Keys. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) Corporal Henry, along with the Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn, obtained enough information during the traffic stop to search the Ford Focus. During this search, they discovered Samantha's cell phone in the car and her ATM card was found in Keys' wallet. You guys... No matter how meticulous you think you are with planning murder, guess what? You're not going to get away with it. I mean, I think there's only been a few, and Danny can corroborate this or, you know, fight me with this, that have ever been close to getting away with the perfect murder. Well, and the thing is, we'll get into it later about Israel Keys, but, I mean, there's a handful of people who could have who have gotten away with things that we don't know like there's plenty of unsolved cases i mean oh yeah jack Jack the the ripper Ripper. (laughs) exactly and then i was gonna also say the black dahlia case has never been solved either you want to know who else i'm gonna bring up john benet ramsey not that one but that's another good one but you want to know who else is a good one who else zodiac exactly the zodiac one of my favorite serial killers which danny will be covering at a later time eventually yes but obviously there are I don't know that you can call them perfect murders, but there are people who have gone uncaught for a very long time. Look at the... Um, Golden State Killer. Exactly, the Golden State Killer. He went he went uncaught for a very long time. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is out there. I would, You know what, guys? I'm going to do some research, and I'm going to actually post on our Facebook group um, a list of almost perfect murders or unsolved cases. See what you guys think. Yeah, and maybe you can vote on them and let me know uh let us know which ones you want us to cover. That would or cool. you know which ones you guys think were close to the perfect murder. Yeah, exactly. That'd be great. So, anyway, we will continue. Um <laughs> After finding all this evidence in the White Ford Focus that connected Keys to Samantha's disappearance, he was arrested. He was arrested on March 16, 2012 in Lufkin, Texas. Keys was originally extradited back from Texas to Anchorage on charges of credit card fraud. But on April 2, 2012, searchers found Samantha Koenig's body in the lake. And on April 18th, an Anchorage grand jury indicted Keys for the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Koenig. Again, I go back to my point of, yeah, there's been some pretty, you know, almost got away with it murders. And I think Israel thought he would. But that just goes to show you that, you know, what goes around comes around. Like, you're going to get caught eventually. Absolutely. While Keys was awaiting trial, he was held in the Anchorage jail. And he was interviewed for over 40 hours by police detective Jeff Bell and FBI Special Agent Jolene Godin. 
Although he wasn't very forthcoming with many details, he began to confess some of the murders that he committed over the past 11 years. And that, ladies and gentlemen and Chris... What the (laughs) fuck? That's where I'm going to leave you guys for part one, because this is a two-parter, y'all. Surprise, bitches. I'm kidding. I'm so... I'm I'm kidding. Don't apologize. Um, what the <laughs> no. fuck? You're going to leave me hanging? Yep. Is this payback for Amityville? Yes, you're welcome. Oh, this is shit. a two-parter. So to hear about what the the rest of everything that happened involving Israel Keys, y'all are going to have to tune in next week. Oh, damn. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm sorry to do it for to you, but... No, you're not. I'm not really that sorry to do it to you, <laughs> but I, I am a little bit because I know you want answers. I do. But here's the thing. We have so much information on the rest of what happens mm-hmm. that let's space it out. Let's let's tease it, you know. Let's go for it. Like so. we we don't want to give you guys all this information in one episode because yeah. I don't want to melt your brains, guys. Well, come that on. and we want you guys to come back. Yeah, we want you guys to keep listening this because is we like love our, you guys. This is like our fish and bait. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we're trying to bait you guys. So to keep y'all on the hook, but um, um <laughs> tune in next week. But before we get that far, uh, send us an email. Uh, this was a suggested case by some friends of mine. So if you want to send us an email and suggest a case of your own, we will gladly cover it for you when we have time. Uh, we can work it into our schedule, especially if it's a case that we already have kind of working, then we could possibly bump up when we do it in order to respond to a suggestion. So, oh, absolutely. If you guys recommend a case, we'll actually bump it up. Yeah, we can try to bump it up if it's already on our schedule. If it's not, we might have to do some extra research. It might take us a little bit to get to, but... We will get the, there. Yeah, exactly. All that to say, send us an email serialknowledgepod at gmail.com super simple send us an email there if you have any suggestions and we will try to answer it as quickly as possible and get it recorded for you yeah and if you have any questions or just want to get more involved you can head over to facebook go to facebook.com slash serialknowledgepod that's our fan page Mm -hmm. and you can follow us there see updates on the podcast we usually post something every single week when we release our episodes just to give you an idea of what we are going to be covering that week Um, And from that fan page, you can also find our Serial Knowledge group where you can become a knowledger and interact with other listeners. So go check us out there. Don't forget to send us an email. And until next week, y'all. We will check y'all later. We will catch y'all later. Bye. Peace.